Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast. March 19th, 2021. How are you doing, David? Doing okay. How are you? Doing pretty good. Nice. Got, got my nice coffee. And, it's nice and sunny today, uh, and uh, we had snow, but it's going to be nice today. It's going to be really nice tomorrow before the next snow comes. There's going to be more snow? I think there's going to be more snow next week. Uh, the weatherman didn't say anything about that. I was planning Who knows? on go- I was planning on going hiking in the mountains. They're screwing me. <laughs> oh, yeah, I we were not on camera that whole time. Oh well, um, and I also started the episode with the PowerPoint showing. It wasn't full screened, so still ironing out some kinks in my broadcasting. But I'm doing my best, right? We're getting there step by step. Yep, and doing it every day. We may not make those mistakes in the future. Um, So today, we don't really have a topic. It's just reviewing uh, the week. So I'd like to start with, if you'll indulge me. Yes. um, Oh, yeah, but we don't don't have a problem with talking about something. We we can talk about anything. Yes. And... uh, because because on Sons of Sequoia, we are, uh, you need to, uh, uh, always, always keep talking. Uh-huh. And so, so we're good at it. And I think everyone should, should talk, right? Yes. Was that a spam call you just got? Yeah. So I, I put my phone on airplane mode. So we talked about this. Did we talk about it off stream yesterday? The Texas... $225 million fine for robocalls. I don't know if we did or not. I told that you about was, it yesterday, didn't I? Yeah, I think it was off off screen. Yeah, off mic. Um, yeah, I mean, we were still talking. It might have been after the episode ended. Uh-huh. But yeah, Texas in Texas, uh, the FCC fined this company, two guys, that made over a billion robocalls, fined them $225 million. Now, this is for robocalls, I think, that were made in 2017. And, hey, it's a start, you know. This is this is my issue. If two guys in the U.S. can make a billion robocalls, what can 100 people in Brazil or Nigeria or Russia, you know, what can they conjure if two guys can conjure a billion? Uh, that's so. That's why I think it's a game of whack-a-mole that may never end. I think these guys might have gotten caught, and you pointed this out yesterday when we were talking about it, by virtue of the fact that they were in America. Mm-hmm. So I think you know if you're in Russia, or if you're in Brazil, Brazil has a high incidence of internet uh, scams that they run. Or Nigeria. Nigeria, I just point that one out because of the classic. I am a Nigerian prince. I have $5 million sitting in a bank account. Send me 5000 and I'll share 10% with you, which is 500000 You know, And you're like, well, it'll cost me 5000 to get 500000 Then you never see your 5000 again. That, that was the classic scam in the early days of the internet. I don't know if they're running robocalling scams. But if two, if two guys in Texas who don't seem particularly smart because... Uh, the FCC was able to track the robocalls to the fake insurance schemes to them and then find them. 
if two guys are able to do that, I imagine the technology is not that hard. If you and I wanted to do that, I think we'd be smart enough to make a billion robocalls if we were so inclined. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, uh, but I think uh, I would say, yeah, uh, but we would be smart enough to ask for money for things that uh, we wouldn't be fined for, wouldn't go to jail for. In other words, would be a televangelist. Yeah, be a televangelist. You don't even have to pay taxes when you get your money. No, just just have a billion robocalls. You know, God is going to be good to you if you give me two dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, and so oh, give me two dollars and I will pray for you. Yeah. You know, they they can't. They, you know, and just say, uh, Lord, whoever gives me two dollars, I'm praying for them. Okay, and so I've done it. I've done exactly what I told them what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And so you do a billion of those. And if you get a billion, just 1% of a billion is, how much is 1% of a billion? 100 million? Something like that. Uh, no, that's 10%. Wait. 100 million is 10%. So 1 million. 100 million, 10. Anyway. No, no, 10 million. Get, it's 10 million. Get, 1% of a billion is 10 million. I, I get one tenth of 1%. I'd be happy with that if I got $2. That's that's two million dollars. Mm-hmm. My my point is, we'd be smart enough not to do something that was that was illegal. We'd do something that was perfectly legal, and we're not saying we're a church. No, we're just saying we're just saying we will pray for you. But if you if you become a church, you could be uh, tax exempt at that point. That's true. Yeah, you could be tax exempt, and uh, actually. You know, and, and if you think about it, what what is a church? And and actually, I, that's hard for the government to say. What is a church? What is a religious? You know, uh, you have you have to have liturgy. You have to have a belief. You have to have on and on and on. Well, that doesn't take much just to write that stuff out. I don't think that the IRS's standard is any of those things, though. You know, I don't know what the I don't know what it is. I just know that, uh, remember when we saw Going Clear, Scientology? Yeah. And their big thing was, we want to become a church, and that was just so that they didn't have to pay taxes. It was There was nothing about proving their liturgy or their, I mean, we had a crazy science fiction writer who wrote a book, and then we started following that as a religion. And mm-hmm. it's like, how is that any different than any other religion? We shouldn't have to pay taxes. That was their big thing. Um, moving on, though. From that, I want okay. to bring, bring up a quick segment. This guy, Jay Baker. Did you see this guy on the news? Bald guy. Oh, yeah. Jay Baker, bad day. We talked about this yesterday. Yeah. He said that the uh, yesterday was a really bad day for him, and this is what he did about the guy that killed eight people. And The Onion, of course, we talked about this yesterday, had an article... Sympathetic police know what it's like to have a bad day and kill eight people. Well, he's been taken yeah. off the case because they went through his social media and they found a post in which he said, COVID-19 is an imported virus from China. Um, he, he took it down, but it was cached because the internet is forever. And the caption he wrote under it was, I love my shirt or love my shirt. 
So, I mean, this guy seems as if he's part of the problem, and that's why he's very sympathetic to the perpetrator and not particularly sympathetic to the victims. I don't know what more we can say about it. I know that we talked yesterday about how foreign affairs adds context and insight, and it takes a look at things from an analytical level and a structural level, and how the news media is often about stoking outrage. Well, I don't know how you could read a story like this and sort of feel any emotion about how how can things change? Well, you know, maybe you could get a time machine and not promote this guy to be your spokesperson. But other than that, it's difficult to imagine how things could change. This is just a story that designed to make you outraged, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting that uh, today, uh, because of the Internet and everything is being said and everyone can hear it, uh, you can be outraged at pretty much anything and everything. And he can just say, hey, I love my shirt. Uh, instead of talking about, you know, he could just say something real simple, but people could read into that and spin it and say, oh, that's that's insulting because, uh, but he could have, I, I guess my point is, is that today we do have to be, not even, not even the COVID-19 thing from China. He could just say, you know, I'm, I'm proud to be, I'm proud to be a police officer. Well, in a one context, that would be fine. Another context would not be fine. We just have to be careful what we say. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to be, uh, uh, humor cannot, humor or anything, uh, a quip or anything uh, that's out there for everyone to hear. Uh, we have to be very literal today. Uh, we can't have second meetings or uh, we can't, uh, when we talk to the internet, we can't talk like we're talking to, to our buddy over here uh, on the stool at our bar. Yeah. You can't talk like that anymore because it's going to be taken a million different ways. So we have to learn how to talk on the internet. It's, fasc it's fascinating, though, because you can talk that way. And sometimes that... I mean, sometimes this guy on his local Facebook page, he's not trying to garner supporters. But sometimes saying incendiary things, outrageous things, it can make you uh, the biggest anchor at Fox News. Now, you might get fired from your job as a school superintendent for saying stuff like that, depending right. on which school district you're in. But you can say stuff like that on the evening news, and people will praise you for it. Now, if you are in what's the most liberal school district in the nation, who knows? Let's just... Liberal School District 1A, the most liberal. And there's video of you saying things like the things Tucker Carlson says on the evening news. I guess it's not really a news show because when he got sued, they said it's not news. He's just playing a character. But uh, but he is behind the desk with a Chiron beneath him, and he sort of acts like it's news, even though it's more entertainment. It's like it. Uh, Tucker Carlson is to wrestling. I mean... Tucker Carlson is to sports. Wait. Tucker Carlson is to news <laughs> what professional wrestling is to sports. Does that make sense? Yes, I know what you're saying. So, yeah, so it does. Pro professional wrestling is sports entertainment. Tucker Carlson is news entertainment. He's not actually news. Good um, point. Good point. Yep. So, I don't know. Something that he could say, he could get fired from... Uh, 
I don't know, like Disney, the lady that was on The Mandalorian, Gina Carano, she said a bunch of conservative stuff online, and Disney said, we're going to part ways with her. That's not really what our brand, it's not what we're going for. And immediately she got hired by The Daily Caller, which is uh, right-wing, because they're making a movie. And they said, well, we're not going to cancel her, we're going to hire her. And the thing is, there is a market for that, you know? The thing that got her fired from Disney got her hired by this right-wing media outlet. And that's sort of the free market at work, as far as I'm concerned. That's not really cancel culture. That's why don't you find a place in the market where you, where people will accept you? Why would you want to work for people that wouldn't accept you? Um, but I, I suppose the argument could cut both ways. I don't know. It's a complicated issue, all this stuff. Well, what I'm saying is that be careful what you say. Mm -hmm. What you say matters now. It does matter. It may get you fired. It may get you hired. But, but my point is, you can't just say things and let them go and have no consequence. There will be a consequence. It may be positive, it may be negative. But today, uh, words matter. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you can't say, we're marching down there. I'm going with you and, and overturn. Uh, overturn the, the election. You can't just say that. Uh, that matters. Yeah. You can just can't say, oh, I was kidding. I was kidding. You know, uh, that doesn't really fly today. Or, you know, like, you know, you stir up a mob and then they start destroying stuff and killing police. And you say, listen, you know that we're the party of peace. I want you to do this, but do it peacefully. And it's like the cat's out of the bag. You can't really put the toothpaste back in the tube at that point. You can't say, oh, the first the first statement I issued, you know, two hours after the killing started. And it's like, well, why didn't you issue it 10 minutes after the killing started? Was, I want this to be peaceful. And it's like, I don't believe you. <laughs> At that point, it's difficult to say, uh, I know that that's what you said, but I don't think that's uh, the timing and how you did it. It's just, it's difficult. So Let's go. Let's fight like hell. Let's do it anyway. I want to yeah. go back to this. This is... They do this a lot now. COVID-19 imported from China, or imported virus from China, the racist shirt said. Now, I, you could have a debate that uh, it's, it's interstate animosity. Like if it had come from Russia. And, you know, during the Cold War, everyone was a commie. They were a Russian. They were a pinko. Was that racism against Russians? Uh, so, I mean, is political animosity against a country that is predominantly a different race racism? That's, I guess that's the question I'm asking, which is people will say you're parsing the language too much. But then again, when you say that someone's a racist, it's almost on an individual level, not a structural level, like what they did in Georgia, basically changing the law so black people couldn't vote. I consider that very clearly racism. Now, when someone says something and they say the racist shirt that he posted and the racist thing that he said, and it might be an off-color remark or he's going for a joke, like you said, and it just doesn't land and it seems like it's a little off-colored and not in the most politically correct bent. But this, I think there's an argument to be made that there's political animosity there as well as racial animosity. And perhaps sort of blaming China for COVID-19 is a result of frustration politically because the president has directed your political ire towards China. And 
the fact that they are predominantly Asian in China, I don't think anyone's going to argue that point, um, makes it seem like it's racially motivated. But during the Cold War, there was a lot of anti-Russian sentiment. Was that racist against Russians? Or was that a nationalistic fervor? And obviously the answer is both are at play. But to what degree? It's, it's, it's difficult to unpack. To say, <laughs> oh, this bald-headed, this skin-headed guy in a police uniform... Uh, that said that the killer of six Asian women was just having a really bad day, and this is what happened, who posted the COVID-19 imported from China t-shirt, he's not racially motivated. You can't really say that. But there's no way you'll ever know that uh, 60% of this is nationalism, but only 40% of it is white nationalism. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like... It's only 30% racist, 70% is just uh, jingoistic, like overly patriotic, nationalist fervor. Uh, it's difficult uh, to say, uh, you can't attach numbers to it, even though that's probably true, right? I would even, there, there, there's actual, well, being in, in Georgia, there's that, I would push those percentages even higher. I mean, because, of course, he's, he's, he's a professional, he's a, Police officer. Yeah, spokesman for the Cherokee County Spokes Sheriff's Office. Yeah, so he should be more aware of language and a, a culture and what is accepted and what is being said outside of his county. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, but within that county, uh, the old Joe Blow down here on uh, in the grocery store and all he ever sees all day long and all he's ever seen was everybody say, how did they, how you doing? You know, that old China, that China virus is really good and big, ain't it? Yeah, it is. So they're going to be talking that way. Mm -hmm. I'm talking that way because that's how I talk. I'm from the South. And I know the people, that's just what the culture said. And that's just what they did. You could, you could argue that there are people that are going to say that because they've never heard anything different. So yes. I, yeah, I guess so. I guess so, yeah. But if you point out to them, wait a minute, you know, let me point out to you, if you say that, that's really kind of like saying it's like their fault, it's racist. You know, I never thought of that. Uh, I guess so. Uh, I guess that is right. I never thought of that. There's good people everywhere. That's, but one, that's one potential outcome. But I think, like you're saying, that China virus, you go along to get along in a, in a racist or, you know, quasi-racist, somewhat racist Area and you say, yeah, the China virus. If you did take the time to correct someone, you may find that they'll listen to you and they'll be polite. They won't argue with you, but you don't get invited to the church bakery, church cook-off. You don't get That's invited right. to be on the bowling team. They don't want you to be the pitcher on the slow-pitch softball team. And you start losing your social network because you refuse to go along in that community. And then it seems like, well, when I got, you know aggressive telling people, you know, calling it the China virus is racist and you should really consider calling it SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 because um, those are the technical definitions of it. People stop liking me and people right. really do want to be liked. So I think a lot of racism is in a sub-community where they have regressive views, those views actually make you part of the in-group. 
And then when you get on national TV and you say, I'm just a Cherokee County spokesman and this white guy, he didn't have a racist boat in his body. He was just having a bad day, accidentally shot eight people, you know, then you look like a racist <laughs> at that point, because judged by the standards of the nation as a whole, and especially the nation that consumes mainstream media, you're, you're going to come off as a racist at that point. Yep. And I uh, and you can you can carry that to other other extremes. You know, when if you're in that situation, you're in that culture, you're in that subculture, like you say, a regressive subculture. And and eight people get shot and they're Asian people. And they go, oh, wow, that's 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 really too bad. It was a bad day. But if eight white people, good old boy, redneck white people got shot. Whoa, what's going on here? They're like, this ain't right. This mm -hmm. ain't right, you know. Uh, why would he do that? Why would he shoot our bud, bud buddies that way, you know? Yeah. And uh, that it, it's a, that's just how it is. You can turn the tables too. You can turn the tables on it. Uh, what if um, you know, we're talking about uh, uh, racism? Uh, what if instead of someone going into Georgia? What if someone from Georgia, or what if you're in New York City and that happened in New York City? Yeah, or you go to, I don't know, San Francisco or something. To the Something happened there. Something happened to, to a, 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 a white uh, uh, supremacist, uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, like a white supremacist goes to a PTA meeting in Silicon Valley where uh, it's all yuppies. Most of them are liberal. It's... 40% Asian, and you start talking about the China virus, you know? And you get shot. <laughs> or Yeah, or you get ostracized from that. From, him. Or you get ostracized from that social group there. Like, I'm just or a good old boy from the South. You know, I'm here at this PTA meeting. I think we need to just sort of forget about this China virus nonsense. It's all mumbo jumbo anyway and get our kids back in school. I think you'd have a large proportion of that PTA meeting say, this guy's a racist. And... If you say that at the Cherokee County PTA meeting, you might get a round of applause. So there are different, there's different sentiments in different parts of the country. And uh, I guess this is my issue, and this is what I was getting at, and I'll go back to it one more time, and then I think we should switch articles, because talking about race is always a little difficult, you know? You always feel like you're treading on eggshells, and you feel like, you said, what you say on the internet matters. You feel like... You could say something that could be misconstrued. Like someone could take the three-second clip of you speaking in a southern accent saying, this China virus, and they cut everything else that we've had out of this conversation and be like, look at this. This guy's a professor, and he's calling it the China virus. And you're like, no, I was doing a bit. You see what I'm saying? Yep. But And, and people will do that. People have done that. People are doing that. People will do that. And so that, that's, that's unfortunate. Um. But this is my point. COVID-19 imported virus from China was his shirt. And then they say the racist shirt in the photo posted April 2020 read. And it's like, okay, so that's racist. I mean, I don't know. Is that like, that's what I'm supposed to say. This guy's a racist. He posted a picture of his racist shirt and he said, I love my shirt. And it's, that's the takeaway. That's what the author wants you to take away, right? But then again, someone 
I get you got to be careful how you say about this. And I'm looking at it as well. Maybe someone from Cherokee County, Georgia, says, "Well, was it COVID nineteen? Is that the virus? Yes. Did it actually was it first uh, recognized in China? Yes. Uh, so it came. Well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> yeah." You know, I mean, what are they talking about racist? They we're could, not even talking about a person. We're they, talking about we're talking about this COVID virus, which came from this China. That's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. so, so why is it racist? Um, they could also say, you know, they could do more reporting. Say Captain Jay Baker received uh, 970 on his SATs and barely got in to... Atlanta Community College. After graduating, he jo uh, joined the police academy where he finished in the bottom quartile of recruits. Due to the fact that he's been with the Cherokee County Sheriff's Department for the last 25 years, he has risen to the rank of county spokesperson. But it's easy to dismiss his racism just as the fact that he's not the brightest bulb in the pack. You know, you could do that type of reporting, too. Like, he could be racist, he could be dumb. Or, you know, his racism could be informed by the fact that he's dumb. You could, I mean, you could do more reporting and say, why is this guy acting the way he is? But all you do is you find one thing online. Oh, he posted this picture of this T-shirt. So let's define the narrative as this guy's a racist. I mean, it's entirely possible that he is. But it would suck to be defined by a picture you posted of a T-shirt. Well, you know, people call me racist because I will say that I think Asian people should are not. Huh? Are you sure you should say this? <laughs> no, I'm going to say it because I believe it. I think Asian people should respect their culture and be Asian. They shouldn't try to be American so people won't call them Asian. I think I think you should you should be proud of your your heritage, mm -hmm. you know, and don't don't try to be an American like like I have students. They say, oh, my name is my my, my name is Mary. I say, oh, OK. Well, here on on the on your your on your record here, it doesn't say that. Well, when I came to America, I changed my name because I just says, OK, well, and I, I even tell them, I say, OK, well, you know, if. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. I'll, I'll call you Mary, but you know this is your given name, and if that's your name from wherever you came from, mm -hmm. uh, you really uh, you should be proud of your heritage because there's good people everywhere. But maybe it's not a renunciation of your heritage. It's I'm embracing embracing sort of this American culture. I'll always hold the culture in which I grew up in very special, but. I know for a fact that people have a hard time pronouncing my name. Mm -hmm. So if I choose an anglicized name, it'll mm -hmm. be easier for people to relate to me. Mm -hmm. And they say that. And I go, okay, fine. I'll, I'll call you Mary then. Yep. You know? But the point is, uh, I, I really believe that people uh, uh, shouldn't try to change. Uh, they should retain uh, the, their, their, where they're from, etc., I'm a, I'm I'm from the South, and there's and I, a lot of people say, oh wow, you're from the South, really? Yeah, this is true. 
And uh, I know I had a, a good upbringing. I learned a lot. When I left home, I don't do the same things I did when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've learned a lot. So and, devil, and devil's I, advocate then is this guy that's being criticized for being racist. Well, is that racism just part of his culture and he's just being who he is? Well, I'm not saying it is. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm saying it. I'm saying that when you look at this and like CNN said, oh, his culture is bad. No, they're saying that this guy is racist. I mean, I'm saying that the guy is racist because what he said was bad. Mm -hmm. He says, well, what he said was racist. I'm saying, yeah, uh, okay, it uh, it is. Uh, but the thing of it is, is that uh, that did he mean it that way? You know, did he come from a culture or uh, come from uh, a, a culture where he where he was a policeman uh, or a police officer? Uh, was he the only one who said that? I think or did that, everybody say that around him? I think know? that his mentality is these words I say, oh, he's just a guy that had a bad day, you know, shot up all these massage parlors. That's a sentiment probably that he felt mm-hmm. among his colleagues or his people been. in Cherokee County. Yep. I And I will say this, and I thought about this in the, in the days because there was this talk when Donald Trump was president. And Omarosa said, I know that he said the N-word on the set of The Apprentice. It's like, oh, if we could get if we could get tape of him saying the N-word, then everyone would know he's a racist. And it's like, that's to me, that's not how it works. Like, and I, I was thinking about this the other day. That guy, Jay Baker, this guy, he could have gone up on that podium and given a 10-minute speech. That was just racial slurs, just slurs against Latinos and Latinas and Asian people and black people. And it was just the worst, most vile words you could think of for 10 minutes, just saying them over and over again. And it would have been less racist than what the Georgia legislature did when they passed laws that systematically denied voting rights to the black community in Georgia because they just lost their Senate seats. Do you see what I'm saying? That's my but they point. Attack, but they attack him. They attack him. But the thing is... Which they should, but they didn't attack... The legislators that passed these laws that said, oh, black people, they do souls to the polls. They bring uh, buses to the churches and then they take them to the polls. Well, what we're going to do is we're not going to allow that to happen. And it's like, why? It's like, uh, v- voter fraud? No, because you're racist. You're not going to allow that to happen because it gets black people to vote. And that's the only reason you're not going to allow that to happen. And that is more racist than any no-no word you could say on a hot mic. That's that's just my take. Yeah. And I, I do feel passionately about this. There is very real racism in this world. And the litmus test should be, are you using your power to disenfranchise other races? Are you designing a system where you systematically deny the same privileges and rights to a certain race as you would to another? That's more racist than any of the words that are X'd out of our vernacular because they're considered the litmus test for defining you as a racist, if that makes sense. That's where I stand. 
So enough about racism. We're about halfway in. I want to talk about this Paul Krugman. Um, he's a columnist for the New York Times. He's a former Princeton economist. He won the Nobel Prize. Um, he wrote an uh, op-ed in the today's New York Times called Vaccine, a Very European Disaster. Shall we read through it? Okay. So we'll just close the book on that conversation for now. Is that okay? <laughs> yep. And start talking about more techno-immunological policy in Europe. Vaccines, a very European disaster by Paul Krugman. <laughs> is that is that racist? What? Talking about a European disaster of a vaccine? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we could spin it. We could spin it that way too. It's it's racist against the Europeans. Mm-hmm. Anyway, go ahead. The United States has a lot to learn from Europe's policy successes, especially when it comes to health care. Every wealthy European nation provides universal health insurance while spending far less than we do. Even though our system leaves tens of millions uninsured, and all indications are that the general quality of care is very good, on average, for example, the French can expect to live four years longer than their American counterparts. There we go. So that socialized medicine does work. Um, in the aggregate. And then I think he's going to say, but there's a but coming. Are you ready? Yep. Yet. Uh, it's not a but, it's a yet. Yet, at this crucial moment in the COVID-19 saga, when new vaccines finally offer a realistic prospect of returning to normal life, policy in the European Union has been marked by one bungle after another. Jabs and arms got off to a slow start. Adjusted for population, Britain and the U.S. have administered around three times as many doses as France or Germany. And the EU countries are still lagging, administering vaccines less than half as rapidly as we are. Fascinating. That's a fascinating little tidbit of information, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Europe's vac vaccination debacle will almost surely end up causing thousands of unnecessary deaths. And the thing is, the continent's policy bungles don't look like isolated instances. A few bad decisions made by a few bad leaders. Instead, the failures seem to reflect fundamental flaws in the continent's institutions and attitudes, including the same bureaucratic and intellectual rigidity that made the Euro crisis a decade ago far worse than it should have been. And I believe bureaucratic and intellectual rigidity is a lot of times a conservative argument for limited government. Because in situations like this, you can have the apparatus of government be a hindrance to doing what is right. So that's just a caveat. Continuing, the details of the European failure are complex, but the common thread seems to be that European officials were not just risk averse, but averse to the wrong risks. Interesting. Is that something that you would look at in a project management? Yeah. Context? Yeah, but that, that, yeah, but that, again, that can be spun a lot of different ways. Uh-huh. They seem deeply worried about the possibility that they might end up paying drug companies too much or discover that they had laid out money for vaccinations that either proved ineffective or turned out to have dangerous side effects. So, they minimize these risks by delaying the procurement process, haggling over prices, and refusing to grant liability waivers. 
they seem far less worried about the risks that many Europeans might get sick or die because the vaccine rollout was too slow. Fascinating. I think that's yeah. fascinating. Well, again, uh, before you go on, I just want to comment. Uh, whoever's writing this, they weren't there when this was happening. I mean, play, play a devil's advocate here. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't there when this was happening. Uh, and and the risks when they were making these decisions. Twenty twenty hindsight or hindsight, you can start saying you didn't do this right, this right, this right. But they weren't there when they were making these decisions. Mm-hmm. I just just to be a devil's advocate, you know. So so yeah, th- th- you can you can start throwing slinging mud like this, but not slinging mud. Maybe I shouldn't have said that, but uh, you can start framing it a certain way when you look back at things mm-hmm. hindsight is 2020 that's that's the saying but i'm even saying 2020 because it's it's not it's not it's not that that uh, obvious uh decisions how to make things uh anyway go ahead okay i will point out though that delaying procurement process haggling over prices i will point out a personal example I run this podcast from the system that I built. And I remember back in 2017, or it was late 2016, I believe. It was 2016. Because um, we built it around the time of my birthday. And I was telling you, you know, I have this laptop. It's really fancy. It does great. But I think I could be more productive with, you know, a desktop with a multi-monitor setup and it would be the ideal situation, but it's expensive. And you said, are you going to use it? And I said, yeah. Are you going to use it every day? Uh-huh. Is it going to be a powerhouse of production for you? I said, yeah. He's like, well, don't wait to get it for six months. Don't wait to get it for nine months. Get it today, and then you'll have nine months more of using it by the time you know you would have gotten it rolls around. Sometimes you just got to pull the trigger on stuff that, that's, that's important. That's just a personal example of a lesson that you taught me, right? Mm-hmm. So, back to the article. Okay. Reading the tale of Europe's sluggish vaccine efforts, I was reminded of H.L. Mencken's definition of Puritanism as the haunting fear that someone, somewhere, may be happy. Eurocrats seem similarly haunted by the fear that someone, somewhere, whether it be pharmaceutical companies or Greek public sector employees, might be getting away with something. During the Euro crisis, this attitude led to the imposition of harsh, destructive austerity policies on debtor nations, lest they somehow fail to pay a sufficient price for past fiscal irresponsibility. This time it meant focusing on driving a hard bargain with drug companies, even at the cost of possibly deadly delay, lest there be any hint of profiteering. Needless to say, here in America, we have a much more relaxed attitude towards corporate profiteering. Too relaxed much of the time, but in this case, it served us well because we didn't pinch pennies in a health crisis. Europe also has other problems. Vaccination was delayed by attempts to pursue a common European policy, which would be okay if Europe had anything resembling a unified government, but it doesn't. Instead, national governments held back on drug contracts while waiting for consensus. Okay, so that's fascinating. It's like when Trump said, I'm a wartime president. And then he said, well, what should we do? We're ready to take our marching orders, Trump. And he said, oh, it's up to the states. So (laughs) I'll own the successes, but the the failures are at the state level, right? 
And this is more like, okay, well, don't move until the EU has an overarching policy. So you're sitting there as Spain or Portugal or Italy or Greece, and you say, okay, but, but we want to move, but we're waiting for the policy. And they say, okay, we're trying to figure out how to make it work. And so the states don't move because they're waiting for the, the federal or overarching supranational institution to make a decision. It's it, my 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 view is that this this is new. Uh, th this virus was new. Uh, they had to make some decisions that uh, that were not allowed. That you had to make decisions and implement those decisions very quickly to be effective. And the system they were in did not allow that. And so how do we change the system? Well, the system has momentum, uh, and it's it, it wasn't nothing was that easy. Nothing is as easy as it looks 2020 hindsight again. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think uh, to me, maybe my opinion on, on these kinds of articles is that it's nice to look back to say this is what happened, but don't blame them for making mistakes. Let's learn from their mistakes moving forward so we don't do it again. Uh, because uh, the biggest mistake that a person or a group of people or a nation can make is to say they never make mistakes. Mm -hmm. I think, though, what Paul Krugman is getting at here is that he often says the costs of European-style socialized medicine are way lower and the outcomes in the aggregate are way better. But the European style socialized medicine has failed to administer vaccines at the same rate as an insular system like the, U uh, the UK or the US. So the UK runs on the NHS and that's different from the European Union health system. Um, and then of course the US runs on a hodgepodge of private companies to sort of administer healthcare. And why have we done better? And I think he's trying to say there are political and structural uh, impediments built into an EU system, whereas bargaining for trade prices, for the price of steel or coal or aluminum, you might want to pinch pennies, but you don't want to do that when a vac life-saving vaccine is on the line. And so I think it's interesting to look and say, he's been a big proponent of the, the efficacy and quality of European-style socialized medicine. But this is saying, listen, I have been one of their biggest champions, but we need to look at why did they fail in this particular regard. So I think it's an important thing to look at. Yeah, taking the article as, as an academic article, trying to lay things out, being honest, being accurate, being academic about it, and say, and so here are the lessons learned. That's the way it should be taken. But what I'm saying is that that you can also take this uh, like the other article you had, mm -hmm. where we can say, oh, well, he's blaming them for for uh, uh, bad decisions that's and true. Poor, poor, poor decisions. Says that's not what he meant. What he meant was, here is why it didn't work, and so let's look at this so that we can be, be better. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what I was getting at. Like, there's nothing wrong with showing people what they did wrong, as long as a person saying, "Okay, then I will, 
I will see if I can change that to do better. Yes. And this may not play well, but I'm going to say it anyway. This might sound racist, but I heard a report on NPR yesterday about Japanese infection rates and death tolls. And the infection rate was getting higher, and so they were enacting measures, but the death toll was relatively low, especially compared to America. And in Japan, the death toll and the infection rates are much lower than America's, despite Japan never having ever once, not last year, not any time in the last 12 months, a full lockdown. And I think that outcomes sometimes aren't the result of policy. They could be the result of overlying culture. So even though America did have lockdowns in places, the culture of, I'm a rugged individual, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to juke an 85-year-old man so I can get into Walmart without wearing a mask. A Japanese person, that culture is like, why would you do that? That's very disrespectful. The government is giving us very simple uh, means to combat this virus. Why would you bristle against that? You know, they're not asking us for that much. So I think that culturally... A lot of times, the, the culture that has defined your place of living for decades or hundreds of years, you know, the traditions, they'll save you in a time when what you need to do plays into those traditions. Does that? I think that's an extremely good point, David. And again, this might, might be bad, but <laughs> years ago, uh, I had a student from Japan and I, we were talking, uh, and this was a long time ago, and, it, and I was teaching business at the time, and we were talking, and, he, uh, and in the conversation, he said, yeah, I came over here to get education and work, and he says, I don't really, it's hard for me to understand how an American business uh, is successful at all, or because... All the employees, all they talk about is talking bad about their employer and the <laughs> next job they're going to have. That's true. And he says, we would never do that in Japan. When we are a employee, that employer is like our father. Mm -hmm. And everything we talk about is how can we do our job better so our company is successful. That's all we talk about. We even name our children after after the company. It, it's a family. And everything we do is positive, is trying to help the company be better, uh, be a better company. In the United States, it's opposite. It's all about, oh, how horrible the company is and what's my next job going to be? I'm going to leave this. Yeah, I'm a junior, just, I'm a junior VP I at, a, at a $50 million a year company, but maybe I can parlay this into a senior VP position at a $100 million a year company. That's exactly how Americans think when they're in the corporate world. Yeah. And and from the and what was told me by this Japanese student who was an employer, he says that that's not how it, that's not how we think over there mm -hmm. in Japan. I go, that's very interesting. And that's very I can see why you guys can be successful. Because when people come together in a, in a common goal, people will be successful. Mm -hmm. And if you're divided, you're not going to be successful. So uh, he says, I can't see how 
how how how businesses actually even run at all. <laughs> yeah, very but good they, point, Dave. But they do, right? So a lot of times, at what cost? But a lot of times, culturally, there is no right and wrong. There's just different. And the areas in which you can be successful will be different than the areas in which there's, you know, an almost family-like devotion to the company you work for will be successful. And I think that that's sort of, in a little bit of a way, a very roundabout way, what we're getting at with this article. Because a European style of socialized medicine will promote greater outcomes for a larger number of people. But... If you apply it to a specific situation, a sort of wild west, every man for himself, don't be afraid to spend money uh, type of freewheeling, free market healthcare, like in America, will do better at getting shots into arms than a highly bureaucratic. It's, it's fascinating, don't you think? So there's a difference in culture between the EU and America. And people will say, oh, the life expectancy in France is four years longer because we have socialized medicine. But people will say, we're going to get to herd immunity faster in America. Hearing something? thought I heard something. Yeah, um, good point. Good point. I mean, I, I could think of other examples, too. But, yeah, the point is you made the point, and that's a good point. Um, so before we finish the article, I just want to point out BuzzFeed printed an article recently, one of those clickbait articles, uh, 10 things about America that Europeans thought were just a myth, or that foreigners thought were just a myth. And some guy from New Zealand said, the drink sizes. I landed in Texas from New Zealand, and I got off the plane, and I'm walking through the airport, and I see this guy drinking soda out of what looked like a bucket. And I was like, this has got to be a joke. And then I realized... You guys sell sodas in buckets here. <laughs> People literally drink soda out of buckets. Like in New Zealand, what you call a small would be our large when it comes to soda. Interesting, huh? <laughs> yeah. So, so we're just different. Everything's bigger in Texas. Um, well, you know, you also what I, what I was thinking was you said, hey, yeah, but America, we're successful. Talking about the businesses? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but remember I said, at what cost? Okay. Well, what went into my mind is in the 1800s, the cavalry comes in and they they totally at, at, at wounded knee and just wipe everybody out. Mm -hmm. And now they're going to set up their empire and they are successful. At what cost? Yeah. I mean, I uh, to me, the implication is very strong there. Is that yes, you can step you can step on people to be successful, but is that the way to do it? I mean, at what what are you losing uh, when you begin stepping on these people? What what type of culture do you have in these companies? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you have cultures that that people will come up and 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 take all the money, and leave leave everybody out, and yeah, but is that the way we should do it? So I, I think. To have a better America, uh, we have to think about what's best for everybody. Mm -hmm. So should we finish off the article? Because we're getting yeah, near the end. Off, let's finish off the article. Okay. So um, we left off. Europe has other problems. Vaccination was attempts to delay a common policy. Uh, but Europe doesn't have a unified government. 
So national governments just waited on drug contracts while they were waiting for commands from the EU. Furthermore, purchasing vaccines isn't the end of the story. You also have to get them in people's arms. And there's nothing in Europe comparable to the national distribution and vaccination push that has rapidly gained momentum since the Biden administration came to power. A little jab at the Trump administration there. <laughs> uh, finally, Europe turns out to have a problem with widespread hostility to science. Sounds a little bit like the U.S. Of course, so do we. Oh, he points that out in the next line. But theirs is different in ways that are doing a lot of harm. In America, hmm. most, although by no means all, hostility to science comes from the right, especially the religious right. We're a nation full of anti-evolutionists, climate change deniers, and more recently, COVID deniers. Forms of science denial that are much less common in Europe, but other anti-scientific attitudes, less easily placed on a left-right spectrum, are distressingly widespread. Fascinating. So in America, most of the normal people say, oh, you're anti-vax, you must be some sort of like wacko conservative. And I would say a majority of conservatives say, yeah, I'll get the shot. That sounds fine. You know, it's a minority of a different minority, which is the conservatives, because they're kind of the minority party now, that is anti-vax. But almost everyone on the left is like, no, it's just science. So our anti-science is cordoned off into a small segment of the population. Their anti-science has infiltrated all tentacles of the population and isn't uh, subject to, to a left-right spectrum debate. That's fascinating. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder why. Maybe because of the, the, the diversity of the different countries. Mm -hmm. there's, because there's less tribalism there. Less. So a tribalism will sort of allow a fringe idea to, get inf to infect the radical wing of one party. But if there's less tribalism you might see it sort of work its way across the spectrum, and then it's not sort of tied to a political ideology. It's fast. I think that's a fascinating point. Yeah, it is. Although, you know, he doesn't really cite, I guess there's a link here, Pew Research, how people around the world view climate change. That's what the, uh, you can't see it, but I can. That's what this uh, hyperlink is. Link, yeah. Um Okay, reluctance to take a COVID-19 vaccine, even if available, is hardly unknown here. But anti-vaccine sentiment appears to be alarmingly broad in Europe, especially in France. All of these problems came to a head this week when a number of European nations suspended use of the AstraZeneca vaccine, based on probably spurious hints that some recipients may experience blood clots. Again, policymakers were obsessed with the wrong risks. Even if there are adverse side effects, they surely pale in comparison with the damage to the inoculation drive. Uh, and again, Europe failed to coordinate. Germany unilaterally suspended AstraZeneca, and others rushed to follow out of fear that they would be blamed if anything went wrong, other than people dying because they didn't get their shots. As I said, the most disturbing thing about this whole fiasco is that it can't be blamed merely on a few bad leaders. Instead, it seems to reflect fundamental flaws in institutions and attitudes. The European project is in deep trouble. That wow. is an interesting conclusion. Um, Anti-science sentiment is is scary. Um, I know that there was a a viral article. Did you hear that marvelous Marvin Hagler died? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if this is true. I haven't seen any follow-up, and I haven't done any research. But on Facebook, it started circulating 
and by research, I mean Googling it, that he died. Uh, okay, so fact check. Okay, so on Facebook, he died at the age of 66. Now, he was a combat sports veteran, one of the greatest middleweights of all time, who was in war after war, where he was getting punched in the head. So, I mean, he lived a hard life in terms of his profession was physically demanding. So he dies at 66 suddenly. On Facebook, a conspiracy theory starts spreading. He died minutes after getting his COVID-19 vaccine. Fact check, USA Today. Um... I'll pull it up. Marvin Hagler's death is not linked to COVID-19 vaccine. Claim Marvin Hagler's death caused by COVID-19 vaccine claimed by social media users. Fact checked by USA Today. False. So I didn't do it. I'm going to take their word for it, if that's okay. I'm not going to do any further research. But Marvin Hagler dies, age 66. Someone on Facebook says he died 30 minutes after getting the COVID vaccine. And post hoc ergo propter hoc. Yes, even though that's not true. But people that want to say the vaccine is dangerous will spread that everywhere. And, you know, Russian bots will spread that everywhere. And disinformation networks will spread that everywhere just because it creates chaos. And the thing is, it, A, it's not true. B, People that want to believe it will believe it. And it, it, it becomes dangerous in this world where any information can be presented without uh, evidence. Because if you want to believe that the vaccine is dangerous, you're like, well, it killed Marvin Hagler. I shouldn't get it. And it's like, imagine if when we had, I don't know how many deaths a day that we have these days, but uh, deaths per day. I'm looking it up. COVID. CDC COVID data tracker. Um, cases and deaths. Cases and deaths by state. Deaths. Total deaths in the last seven days. Oh, no. Total That's deaths. A million. That's not the last seven days. That's total. So I'm trying to get the current deaths. Deaths in the U.S. last 30 days. Here we go. So we can find a data point. Wow, look at that. 3,000 people. So, I mean, it's going down. It's 1,000. So imagine if every hour you What's said... The look at the cyclical nature of that. Uh-huh. Do you think some of this... Uh, your Is status, that weekly? Let me Is that weekly? Um, these are daily, right? Yeah, this is daily. Okay, go back down. Let me see the whole thing. And let me uh, actually switch so that we're not on screen so that the audience can see it as well. We're looking at a graph of COVID deaths. Okay, so what is your analysis? Well, when I see when I see the, the cyclical nature of this thing, mm -hmm. one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, it, it's cyclical by, by weeks. So... Uh, the cyclical nature of this is reporting. Yes. Okay. The 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 the, the uh, actually it's a weekly. Uh, Do you think these tranches are weekend days? Yeah. Yeah. Just it, I think it has to do with reporting. August nineteenth. Now, now the bigger the bigger one 
is probably delayed. Is it there's a there's a lag in there? Mm-hmm. See that it goes up, then it down, then it comes back up, goes back down. Uh, and even the bigger one, it looks like what is this a five day or that should be like a seven day. What they should have looks like they are. The red line, I bet, is a seven day uh, moving average. Yes, I think that sounds right. Because they're trying to take out the season, the, the the cyclical nature of the week. That's exactly right. Seven day moving average. There you go. Because you can see you don't have the seven day uh, cyclical nature. But even even the 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 seven day moving average is going to probably be delayed uh, by reporting as well. Right. And so you you can probably shift that over too. But the 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 the, the overall nature of it, I think then that has factors that we're trying to talk about as far as policy is concerned. Yes. Why did it go up, come down and go up and come back down again? So that's probably policy uh, and uh, uh, also, that type of thing. Also, I want to point out, too. That's that, a good graph. I should use that in my classes. Yeah. So we had the initial spike. That's when lockdown was, you know, April 21st, less uh, less than a year ago, 11 months ago. And then if you remember in the summer, we had, this is just for deaths, the second wave. And then things got really bad around Christmas. And I think, you know, January 15th here, where my mouse is, where the thing is, that's sort of a two-week lag from people that yeah. got infected at Christmas. Right. Well, well, if you sort of draw a through line where I'm at 1,000 deaths a day, 1,000 deaths a day is where we were at at the height of the summer second wave. And that's where we're at now. We're not out of the woods, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. The What we're experiencing now in terms of deaths is equal to at the second wave, the crest of the second wave in summer. Mm-hmm. And it's crazy because, you know, because of, I think, Christmas celebrations and we had a moving average that was over 3,300. Well, we've reduced that by 33%. Now it's 1,100. But that means roughly a thousand people a day are dying from COVID nineteen, and right. so the question is, if Marvin, if Marvin okay. Hagler did have an allergic reaction to the vaccine, and it killed him, and you can isolate um, that case with a hundred others, that would be concerning, but a thousand people a day are dying from this virus. So, if it kills one person a day, the vaccine would take three years to kill as many people as COVID does in one day. Does that make sense? And people don't look at it that way. And it's like, oh, I heard the vaccine can cause really bad palsy. Like I had a friend telling me this because he's an anti-vaxxer. And it's like, yeah, I heard that COVID-19 can kill you. So I'll roll the dice of a 1% chance of palsy versus a 1% chance of death. If that make, I mean, that's that's the calculations people should be doing, but it's interesting not to fear the disease, but to fear the vaccination that'll help you return to normal. I I think the way people look at it, I, I don't know, but I I I hypothesis a hypothesis about how people look at it is that if they take the disease, then they do something, and that vaccine. I mean, if they if they, take, if they do take the vaccine, mm-hmm. then they've done an act where that vaccine could kill them. 
no matter what the percentage of the probability. But if they do nothing, then it's not their fault. Mm-hmm. That's just a disease happening. That's it's, just it, life. It's China's fault. They can blame someone else. Yes. Or, or I, I didn't do anything. That's just, I, it's just too bad. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, that's just life. And so if they actually do something that caused them, well, maybe I would have lived if I hadn't done that. Yes. And when I said it's China's fault, I was being sarcastic. Just to point that out, not being racist. I'm not the guy from the Cherokee County Pe- Sheriff's Department. Yeah, but people will say that. Other people will say that. Mm-hmm. But the point, what I'm getting at is that if you do it or you don't do it, if you do it, you could die. If you don't do it, you could die. The probabilities don't matter. If you do it, if you take the vaccine, the probability of dying is ex- is is astronomically small or having a problem. But if you don't take it, the probability is extremely high. But the way people see it is that, well, I don't want to do something to kill me. I want I don't want to do it because it could kill me. Mm-hmm. And they don't even look at the probabilities. But that because it, it, it's a it's a there's an argument there that's that's a a personal argument. Like I don't want to do something bad, and if I don't do something that's done to me, it's not my fault. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that article, you know that we just read Paul Krugman about the Europeans failures on administering the vaccine. It's a little bit heartening because I feel throughout this whole COVID-19 epidemic pandemic, America has kind of been the punching bag for bad behavior and dumb implementation. And to hear that anti-science sentiment is widespread in Europe, there's a element of schadenfreude where it's like, I bristle at the fact that people, that there's anti-vaccine people that talk to me and say, oh, no, I heard that, you know, it's bad. And it's like, you know, it's bad. The disease is killing a thousand people a day. Um, That's bad. But to hear that it's also in Europe, it's it's a strange thing to say, and it's going to make me look like a bad person. But it makes you feel a little bit better about America to know that there are superstitious science deniers everywhere and that it's not just a symptom of the decline of America. There's people everywhere that say, I'm going to rebel against reason because I'm so, because I don't like reality. And I think that's a lot of it. Reality sucks. Therefore, if you give me a reasonable uh, solution, I'll reject it because it comes from reality. When I got my vaccine, you asked me, why did I take it? Mm-hmm. And I says, well, you know, uh, there are very intelligent people, very smart people. They're working hard. They developed this vaccine. They have testing. Uh, and, and the science is uh, over hundreds of years. And it's developed over the decades and over years and over months. Uh, they brought this this science benefit. And they, they've done everything, smart people have worked hard, done everything to make this safe, to help me. And I says, I'm definitely gonna take it because, and by the way, I took it and I was fine. Mm-hmm. And I, but I took Advil, I took Tylenol, uh, I took ibuprofen and acetaminophen uh, so they wouldn't have any side effects and I had none. 
And you're an N of uh, one. I mean, I think that anecdotal stories are important within communities and with like if someone listens, like you took it and you're fine. But a lot of people have taken it and they're fine. And that's that's even more comfort to me. I mean, the fact that you and Laura have been vaccinated and you were fine, that's I'm thankful because incidents of allergic reaction or adverse effects are very low, but you weren't one of those incidences. Now, if you had had a terrible allergic reaction and ended up anaphylaxis and had to be hospitalized for two days, would I be gung-ho to get the vaccine? And the answer is probably. <laughs> because Or if I, did, if I didn't take uh, acetaminophen and ibuprofen, I didn't do that, maybe I would have had side effects. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have been severe. I'd have gotten over and said, oh, I felt terrible. Because people do feel terrible sometimes. Because everybody's different. But do you see what I'm saying? If you had, or you or Laura had an adverse reaction, I would probably still take the vaccine. Because it's like, well, you're a different person than me. The incidence of adverse reaction, because I look at statistics and a lot of people don't. They just look at stories. And if the story was one of the two of you that have had it had a hard time, be like, well, that's 50-50. But the thing is, I know in my head it's not 50-50. I know it's one in a thousand. And if you were one of those one in a thousand, I'd say it's very unlikely that I'll be one of those one in a thousand. But it's tough because if you see a family member struggling because of something that they proactively did, it's tough to say, I'm going to do that too. I don't know. But we're a little off what's topic. A, what's a yeah, it's a little off topic about how people look at this stuff. Uh, what's the probability of dying in a car accident without wearing your seatbelt? Mm-hmm. And I, uh, d- I don't, definitely I'm don't, don't buckle up sometimes. Like, sometimes I don't. I drive to your house. We have dinner nearly every night. And uh, that drive... I would say 50% of the time I buckle up, 50% of the time I don't. And that's dumb. It's it's probably more likely to kill me um, before the age of 50 than smoking a pack of cigarettes a day is. Just not buckling up 100% of the time. And yet I still don't do it. So it's, it's fascinating. You could say you play by the numbers, but your behavior is, my behavior doesn't really support that. Although yeah. I am, since we're almost done here, after we get done, I am going to take a long walk in the green belt, and that should prolong my longevity. <laughs> uh, well, I think I think behavior and attitude, I think that's what uh, this article was talking about, mm-hmm. uh, how the behavior uh, in Europe and the behavior in the United States, uh, there's differences because it's different cultures. And uh, I think you've mentioned many times you stand uh, where you stand is where you sit. And uh, and a lot of it is a lot of humans are cultural beings Mm -hmm. are social beings. And a lot of what we do and also with the uh, the police officer, a lot of what we do and say is is uh, influenced by people around us and our culture and our society. And And I I imagine the police officer has said stuff in press releases or briefings or chats with local news that would have been problematic had it been under the microscope of the entire nation. And the fact that it was insulated in Cherokee County, Georgia, um, it flew under the radar. 
You know, this mm-hmm. guy only had a problem when his little world became viewed by everyone in the world. And they said, whoa, your little world is out of consensus with where the broader world is at right now. But mm-hmm. I'm sure that his little world was in consensus. That's why he talks the way he does. On the other hand, the broader world today is out of whack with the broader world of 100 years ago. Yes. Um, did you hear about, okay, before we go, one more story. <laughs> okay. And we have so much fun, David. I want to hear. I want to hear what you think about it. This young lady, um, she's really young. Uh, what's her name? Alexi McCammond. Let's get a picture of her. This is her. She's 20, 26, and she was promoted to be the editor in chief of Teen Vogue. They went back through her tweets and they found an anti-Asian or, and I couldn't find the tweet and this was driving me crazy. Uh, I didn't look very hard, obviously, but um, so this young lady, 26 years old, she gets the job of a lifetime by virtue of being announced as the next editor. They go back through her tweets. They found one from nine years ago that was prejudicial towards Asian people. They started calling her a racist and she resigned. But the thing is, nine years ago, she was 17 years old. And uh, here it is. I found it. I found the uh, initial tweet. So the Daily Mail posted it. They don't care. Here we go. Uh, November of 2011, she was 17 years old. Outdone by an Asian. What's new? Now Googling how to not wake up with swollen Asian eyes. Give me a 210 on my chem problem. Cross out all of my work and don't explain what I did wrong. Thanks a lot, stupid Asian TA. You're great. Um, well, she's talking. Yeah. Yeah. So. The TA, it wasn't a TA, it was an Asian TA, but she's talking about an Asian TA. Yes. So, I mean, she's. I don't know. I Those, those are not very well. I mean, those tweets didn't age well, and they are almost explicitly racist, some of them. Um, and yet, she was 17. That's that's what's a little bit tough. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's too bad. Yeah, I mean. I, I think the interesting thing is, do you remember Kevin Hart when he didn't host the Oscars? And people were mad at him. So this is 2017, 2016. And he had made, you know, 10 years earlier or whatever, in the early 2010s, some jokes about anti-gay. You know, I hope my son doesn't say he's gay, something like that on Twitter. And people said, look at these tweets. These are so problematic. He tweeted these out. And Kevin Hart's response was interesting. And a lot of people like Kevin Hart. And he's like, listen, they weren't funny when I said them. And the first time this became a scandal, five years ago, I apologized. I'll point you to my apology then because I feel the same way. But every time I get a job and someone says I don't deserve the job because of these tweets I tweeted out 10 years ago, I can't re-apologize. I've already apologized once. 
And my life can't be defined by apologizing for something I said 10 years ago. I need to move on. And people said, he's not even apologizing for it. And he lost the Oscars. <laughs> but he, he did have a point, right? If you said something and you regret it, and you've apologized for it, should you have to apologize for it every time someone brings it up? Well, if Trump doesn't apologize, and he became the president of the United States. That's true. Maybe apologizing is the wrong strategy. So I don't know. I don't know how to contextualize any of this stuff. We got people being fired for things they said when they were in high school, um, when they're nearly 30 years old. You know, they're 30 years old now. So, you know, 10, 10 years ago, um, we have well, the, uh, the, other, the other thing is that so people say things, okay? And they go, oh, that's terrible from, from today. Uh, again, you, when I was a kid growing up, uh, things were said that if they said the same things today, they'd be terrible. The you only know? problem but is I, that when you were a kid, that was in the 50s. The interesting thing about Twitter is, and let's go back to that picture that I showed you. Um, Let's see if I can pull up the big picture. This, her tweets, they would have looked way different in 2011 because Twitter looked different. But when Twitter updates, it makes anything she said in 2011 look exactly like it does today because it's the format of the website. So she might as well as be saying this today. That's the fascinating thing about the internet to me is that if you watch the Miracle on Ice, it's broadcasted an interlaced 480p broadcast standard, like Betamax. And you can't get the Miracle on Ice in high def 1080p or 4K because of broadcast standards back then. But these days, when someone says something, it doesn't look old because it gets updated to look brand new. And so it's like, it's easier to contextualize, oh, she just said that because it looks like a current tweet on Twitter. If I tweeted today, that's what it would look like. Isn't that, it's kind of interesting, don't you think? Yes. It's sad, really. Uh, what I was going to say is when I was a kid in the 50s, and I'm not going to give examples because people will take it out of context. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, don't give examples. But people but, have... What, what, what I'm going to say is that... Uh, People would say things back then that would not be acceptable today. Mm -hmm. But when I was a kid and those things were being said, they weren't meant that way at all. I mean, they weren't meant that way at all. That that there was totally. Actually, it was it was like we're talking. Uh, have I said anything to dis, to be racist against you? Yeah, no. Everything that was said back then was similar, at least for, for in my in my world. Mm -hmm. And but you take it, you know, fast forward to uh, 60 years later, the same thing said today would be considered racist. Yes. But back then it wasn't because that, that's people. That's how people lived. And it wasn't taken either way. Mm -hmm. The person who said it, the person who received it. Someone said something to me. I said something to them. Then it wasn't taken that way at all. It was it was very positive, and uh, and I know I I just I as far as discrimination is concerned, 
uh, when I was growing up uh, in my world, the people I knew and everything, mm-hmm. I didn't even I didn't even know what that meant. And that's fascinating because, because it Tulsa, just didn't happen. Tulsa, ten years before you were born, there was a you know huge thriving black community, and the white people came in and they just slaughtered them all. So it's like you lived in one of the most racist places in the world and you were unaware that racism even existed. (laughs) No, because my parents were not that way at all. Mm -hmm. And they were right in the middle of it. They were right in the middle of it. And no, I I didn't even know it. So the culture you, like the insular family, the nuclear family, shielded you from realizing that there was this broader undercurrent of racism going on in Tulsa throughout your whole childhood. Yeah, and I'll go ahead and tell this one story. Uh, okay. You want me to? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's... Uh, okay, we're talking about racism. I guess, uh, well, what's the whole point of this uh, podcast? It was something else. I mean, it was just Week in Review. So we talked about the guy from the sheriff's county, and then we talked about this lady. And the thing is, when you start talking about the past and comparing it to the present, it's always going to seem outdated you know and i don't know it's, yeah, but it's, it's positive i was a kid uh and uh, so benny ruth was the lady who took care of me while my parents were working mm-hmm. and she was black uh and uh she was like my second mother i, I loved her and uh and they says uh, benny ruth could you uh take michael uh, up uh, bring her to the store and says yeah yeah we'll take the bus uh and so we got on the bus and Benny Ruth says, you sit here in the front. I'm sitting in the back. And I said, no, I want to I sit with you, Benny Ruth. Uh, I want to sit with you. And she says, no, Mike, you sit up here and I'll sit in the back because there were there were white people on the bus. And so she made me sit there and she went to the back and I cried. I said, I thought Benny Ruth didn't like me anymore. And I'm telling you today she was black. I didn't know she was black. She wasn't black or white or purple or green. She was Betty Ruth. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I loved her. And she was like my second mother. And I didn't even know, I didn't know why she made me sit in the front. I, I thought she didn't like me anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, I was so hurt, you know. When we got off the bus, I hugged her and I wouldn't let go of her. Because I said, Betty Ruth, don't you like me anymore? And uh, I didn't know what, what it was. And it's really sad that, these articles, what people say, I think that that they had to learn it. Uh, I, I learned, I was right in the middle, like you say, of a lot of discrimination and, and, and uh, really a negative environment. But right in the middle of that, uh, I was insulated from it because of my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, we... We were, I mean, my my family and Benny Ruth's family, we were very good friends. We'd do things together. they go fishing together. And so it's, it's in society, for some reason, there are people who try to uh, spread this evil type of a discriminatory uh, perspective. And it, it just lowers the value of our society by doing that. that so- that's what I was yeah, that's a good story. I mean, so before we wrap it up, I think that we did an episode yesterday about tribalism. Mm-hmm. And one of the things was sort of developing spaces for people from different walks of life. This was the tribes of Democrat and Republican. But just having interaction with 
people of, you know, different class, creed, sexual orientation, race, uh, political ideology, it'll help you understand them more. You sort of, they're not a Democrat, they're a person, you know. They're not um, a, a lesbian, they're a person. I mean, they are a lesbian. They're not, you know, black, they're a person. And you start to think of them as a person first with their own unique set of problems and uh, identity, uh, you know, points of identification and uh, successes. And they have a different way of defining the world than you may, but you might learn something from them. And the more that you learn from people, the more well-rounded your opinions about life can be. And I'm sure that we're not completely enlightened people when it comes to issues of race, you know, by virtue of sort of looking at these current issues today, I think people will look back and they'll say, wow, you know, perhaps defining race as if you said something at any point in time online that was racist, you're a racist, was a folly. And not sort of railing against these people in Georgia that are passing laws to systematically deny people of color the vote not pointing to that and say that is racist instead you're focused on what some lady said 10 years ago on her twitter when she was 17 like that's a good way to, to, to derail progress on race in america it's sort of like the magician look over here at what this girl said when she was 17 don't look over here at these fully grown adults in the georgia legislature systematically passing legislation to not to deny people of color the vote don't look at that Look at what this girl said when she was 17. She shouldn't have her job. So I think that it's fascinating where we're at with this debate. The fact that we would, that I would even bring it up, and I kind of feel bad for bringing it up, you know, at the end of the podcast, is it's compelling to talk about. But really, that's not, I mean, that's a form of racism, but I don't think it's the most insidious form of racism. Does that make sense? The guy saying, yes. this guy had a really bad day and he posted China viruses from China or whatever. That is a form of racism, but I don't yep. think it's the worst form of racism that we see in society today. That's where I think I'll end it. But what I was getting at is, like with tribalism, coming together and sort of seeing things from people who are not like you's perspective is a good way to move forward in this world. And that plays in, I'm going to play the outro music now. That plays into your tagline to end every episode, right? Right. Well, just like Senses of Koya, keep on talking. But when you talk, listen more than you talk. And when you listen, try to understand what the other people are saying. Because there's value in it. Bye. Bye.